I, um, I just, my mom's here today, which she comes fairly often. Hi, mom. Welcome. Um, I told her the preacher was going to be amazing. I might have overpromised. <laughs> but I introduced it to Mark, and I said, hey, this, you've met Mark before. Mark, my mom, this is the guy that took my job. And then I walked away. <laughs> But I, I, I said that because in my heart, I'm just so filled with joy. If you're new to our story, Mark leads the team that leads this church. And at about mid-January, before that, I, along with Heidi, gave leadership to the team that led this church. And over the course of a year, we were trusting God to find someone who could, who could bring to this church a gift mix, a something that I couldn't bring. And I felt my season had come to an end. It was a season for someone new to, to come in and just bring something new to the church, and boom, here they are in the flesh. <laughs> and I want to tell you that, that we've had a brilliant transition. I hope you know that transitions don't always go well. That often there's conflict, often there's difficulty, often there's, you know, there's, there's pride, there's egos that clash, there's a lot of stuff that can happen. But I want to say to you, in all honesty, we've had a brilliant season of transition. Yeah. That actually I am thoroughly enjoying seeing this fresh gift and this fresh gift mix of this family just bringing out brilliant new flavors uh, into the life of our church. I just feel like God has blessed us over the last few months in such abundant ways. And I'm grateful to the eldership team. For, for standing with me when I said, guys, I feel like my season's coming to an end. Can we find someone? Man, they were with us. And uh, I think of Klaas and Megs who aren't here. I'm just so filled with joy for them for loving us so well. And then I'm grateful to you, the church. You guys have received these guys so well. It's just been such a joy from them. We speak all the time about how joyful it is for them. To, people ask them, how's it going? Oh, transition, hectic. Uh, and they're just like, guys, honestly, it's been amazing. <laughs> the church is amazing. It's been a fantastic journey. And then, of course, I'm grateful to you guys. You guys have just come in. You've served so well. You've got to know people. I've loved serving with you and under you and alongside you. It's been a fantastic season, and I'm enjoying it. It's fun. Um, <laughs> which is good for you guys to know that this has been a fantastic season. And then, of course, I'm grateful to God because God provided. It's just, it's brilliant to be standing here on the other side of a transition and a trusting God to say, man, God, you've been faithful. So yay, let's thank God for that brilliant transition. And that leads me to my next point, that I know you're going to be safe in the hands of this couple when I go to France to watch the rugby <laughs> next Tuesday. If you don't know, if you don't know, I'm married really well, and uh, every four years, uh, my father-in-law and mother-in-law, they love rugby, and so they take the whole family to the World Cup. So it's going to be Rachel's third World Cup. She went when she was naught, four, and eight, if you can believe it. And so, yeah, there's a few pictures of us last year, just so you can, you know, really feel the intensity of it all. Um, you can see us holding the World Cup in a, in a, we'll do it again, just in case it worked. And then you, you would have read in Rusty's book about that conversation that we had with him. That's why I'm really hopeful for this World Cup. We gave him a few good pieces of advice. But on next Tuesday, we, we jet off and we'll be gone for a while, so you won't see me. And uh, I probably won't be thinking that much of you, but I will try. 
And the reason I'm not here next Sunday is because next Sunday, uh, we as a church and I have had the awesome privilege of putting together a weekend for all of the advanced churches in the Western Cape, 18 to 28-year-olds, we're taking them away for a weekend just to invest in what we call future shapers. And so I've been organizing that. Rosina's been doing the real organizing, and she always makes me look good. But uh, I'm thankful to, for the team for releasing us. Mark's going to be there to lead worship. So we really are going to serve beyond ourselves into the Western Cape, into the future shapers. So think of us next weekend. But I am meant to be talking about prayer, so let me get onto that. I thought I'd share with you guys a, one of my prayer failures a prayer failure. I, I was, um, I've only ever been part of two churches, Meadowridge Baptist, now Connect, and this church. And years ago, I, when I was at Connect, I, we were at a prayer meeting, and we went through a season where, uh, for some reason, we were praying like every Friday night. It wasn't an organized thing. It was just a whole lot of us just wanted to pray. So we got together and prayed, and I remember the one day I went straight from work, and we were praying, we were praying, we were praying, and everyone was just, you know, moving around, walking, sitting, and I, I lay down, and I was praying, and I was praying, and the next minute, all I felt was this tap on my shoulder. You're snoring. <laughs> and I'd obviously just fallen asleep <laughs> in the middle of the prayer meeting. So there you go. We don't always get it together. That'll get you sitting up and praying a lot better. Um, anyway, this prayer series has been fantastic. And I want us to remember that this prayer series, it's an invitation from God to deepen our prayer lives. We're not just learning about prayer, we're wanting to pray. We're wanting to be a people who are developing and deepening our prayer life. If, I mean, prayer is possibly the greatest gift God has given us. If we want to thrive spiritually as Christ followers, we can't stay in the shallow end of prayer. We have to deepen our prayer lives. We have to be meeting and engaging with God. That's why week one, we looked at what prayer is. And remember, this is based on Tim Keller's book, this series. And his definition is prayer is a personal, communicative response to the knowledge of God. And we explored that. If you missed it, you can go check it out. And if, and if it's true that prayer is, is a response to the knowledge of God, then how much we know about God and how accurate our knowledge about God is, the more effective our prayer lives will be. Makes sense. That's why in week two, we looked at the fact that the Bible is the key ingredient to a powered-up prayer life. And we explored meditation, what it looks like to meditate on God's Word. And I wonder how many of you have actually tried that, have tried to build rhythms in. You know, we're very good at learning stuff, not so good at executing stuff. So I challenge again, let's, let's try build into our lives this rhythm of meditation, and you'll see how it, it flows even into this message. God's Word is central to a powered-up prayer life. We have to be developing time in God's Word for us to be growing and thriving as Christ followers. And then week three last week, week four today, week five next week, we're looking at three big kinds of prayers. So last week, Mark spoke about upwards prayers of awe. That's how Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Upward prayers of all. Mark reminded us so powerfully last week that, that prayer is pursuit, the pursuit of God. It's the pursuit. In prayer, we pursue God. We encounter God. Today, I'm going to be looking at the inward prayers of intimacy. And next week, Colin's going to be looking at outward prayers of petition. So when you hear the words inward prayers of intimacy, what kind of prayers come to your mind? What are you thinking? Prayers of invitation for God to reveal his love to us. Prayers to be filled with the spirit. Prayer for us to feel God's nearness. 
for him to make himself known to us? Well, those are the answers I definitely would have given a few months ago, but it's changed. We're going to see today that inward prayers of intimacy actually revolve around self-examination and confession. Inward prayers of intimacy deal with us doing business with God around our sin. I know it's not what I was expecting either, but it's beautiful. It's beautiful. See, if prayer is personal, you can put that definition back up again. Prayer is personal. It means that there's vulnerability, that there's self-disclosure, that there's honesty, that there's openness. It means that you bring your real self to God as you are, not your Sunday best first date you. God knows who you are, so in prayer, you, you bring yourself to God. And the only way you can truly bring yourself to God is when you're thinking about who you are, examining yourself, and then there's elements of confession. Matthew 6, Jesus, this, is, this then is how you should pray. He's teaching us to pray. He says, our Father in, in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and this is where we are today, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven the debtors, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We're in verse 12 and 13. We're broadly dealing with these inward prayers of intimacy where we do business with God around our shortcomings. See, when we do business with God about our shortcomings, it leaves us with a greater experience of God's grace and a greater assurance that he loves us unconditionally. And that's the big idea for today, actually. When you do business with God around sin in prayer, it leaves you with a greater experience of his grace, a greater assurance of his love, and when you encounter God like that, you will be transformed. You will be transformed. Prayer is more than just a conversation. It's an encounter with God. So I want to help us experience this, to do this well, but one, I want to look at helping us understand grace. Then I want to hold, I want to speak about these two truths that we have to hold on to, and then I want to get practical, some ways that we can do this. Okay, here we go, understanding grace. Now, if you've been following Jesus for some time, stay with me here. Don't let me knock you on the shoulder and say you're snoring. My experience when it comes to grace is that most believers think they understand what grace is. They have an understanding about grace is this is old hat. I mean, I did this in sub A. My experience of Christ followers is that we all know what grace is, but we find it exceptionally difficult to actually live in the light of grace. We understand grace, but we don't embrace grace fully. And if we do, it seems to ebb away in different seasons. It's so simple sometimes that it's so difficult. The idea that you can do nothing, you can do nothing to make God love you more. You can do nothing to make God love you less. It's very hard for us to actually live in the light of that truth. I heard a story this week of someone who is really struggling in life. And this person knew them from church. They had been very involved in church. I think they said they'd even preached or served in the church heavily. And they had had a lot of setbacks. There had been sin. There had been real trouble in their life and in their marriage. They were far from God. They were trying to find their way back, back to life. But they were far from God. But they, they weren't rebuilding their life spiritually. They weren't drawing near to God. Things had got so bad, they were running away from God. And they didn't realize what they were doing the whole time. The further you run away from God, the worse it's gonna become. But that's what we do as Christ followers. We don't understand grace. We don't embrace grace like we should. So let me start by helping us grasp this. 
Let me read a text, Exodus 34. It says, And he, God, passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow in anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Now, this is not hard for us to receive and accept. It's not hard for our culture to accept. It, it fits in with the fairly one-dimensional idea that, that God is love, that that's all that God is. He's essentially just love. Let's keep reading. It says, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. That's a bit more jarring. That's a bit harder to swallow for us as a culture. God is just, so he cannot leave sin unpunished. He cannot leave rebellion unpunished. And so what you see in this verse is two truths that are quite easy to see. One, God is compassionate and gracious, abounding in love. That's true. God is just, and he can't leave the guilty unpunished. That's true. What this verse doesn't help us do is understand how these two things fit together and work together and how they can both be true at the same time and, and how that works itself out. So I want you to follow me here. This is important. This is a, a, a foundational truth in your life, and I'm going to go through a few different texts. So I need you to, to lean in and turn on. Good? You with me? The conundrum of God being both love and just actually drives the plot of most of the Old Testament. You see, God relates to humanity by covenant. This is a defined and agreed relationship where both parties promise to be or do something, and then everyone flourishes in that relationship. So the, the Old Testament covenant is, you will be my people, I will be your God. That's the summary. You be my people and then I'm going to be your God. And so both sides commit to being faithful to this truth. But then what happens all the time is that God's people, the Israelites, fall short. They're not God's people like they need to be God's people. They're unable to fulfill, to be what it takes to be the people of God. And so what you expect to see in the Old Testament is for God just to write them off. For God to write them off because they failed in the covenant. Humanity has failed to keep up their end of this agreement and so God is free to discard them. But what you see in the Old Testament is that there's times of difficulty and punishment, but God always offers forgiveness. God always offers a way back for his people. And he promises as much in the future. Look at Jeremiah 30, 31. It says, this is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their hearts, write it in their, in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God, they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sin no more. So here you've got this future promise of a covenant. So people have to be faithful to God's law. That's what it means to be God's people. But then at the same time, you've got Jesus saying, but I'm going to forgive them. So the question is, is our relationship with God conditional? Is it based on our obedience? Is our relationship with God based on how good, how well we do at keeping the law? Or is our relationship unconditional, based simply on God's love for us? And the answer is yes. The answer is yes. Romans 3. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood, to be received by faith. 
He did this to demonstrate his righteousness, his right standing with God. Because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. This helps us understand that in Jesus Christ, both of these things are true. Our relationship with God is conditional based on our obedience. It's also unconditional based on God's love for us. Jesus had to die because our obedience matters. If it didn't matter, he wouldn't have had to die. And because Jesus died, we're completely secure in our relationship with him. Jesus had to die because our obedience matters. But because Jesus died, the relationship with God is completely dependent on God's love for us. You see, when Jesus died on the cross, hey, if you're not yet a Christ follower, and you're here this morning and you're looking into the claims of Jesus or a friend brought you in, I want you to hear this message today. This is a message that can change your life. When Jesus died on the cross, he took the punishment for your sin, for my sin, for all of our sin sitting here. He took the punishment of our sin onto himself so that we didn't have to pay the price. So that we could receive the blessing of being in right relationship with God through faith. Jesus is the Savior. He's the one who saves you. He's the one who takes the punishment that was due to you and he puts it on himself and he offers forgiveness for your sins. In which case you're restored in this covenant relationship with God. That's why Jesus all over the New Testament, he's called the giver of the greatest gift we could ever receive, the forgiveness of sins. Matthew 26, it says, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins because our obedience matters. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. I hope you know that God just didn't, didn't sweep our sins under the cosmic rug. Just sweep them out and you know, didn't see them anymore, that they were just gone. Jesus had to suffer and ultimately die to rescue us from the damage and the impact and the destruction of sin. Forgiveness wasn't free for God, but it is for us because Jesus offers it to us as a gift. It's not dependent on our performance. There's nothing we can do to make God love us more or love us less because it's about Jesus. Forgiveness was very, very costly. And so when I speak about grace, when I speak about praying these intimate prayers, we have to hold this idea that grace is free and grace is costly. Grace is free, but grace is costly. And if you want to deepen your prayer life, you need to remember both of these truths. It's like walking a tightrope. You have to walk this tightrope and you have to remember the whole time, grace is free, but grace is costly. Grace is free. And I like to think of it, this is kind of a tension, a theological tension. When I think of theological tensions, I like to think about a spider web. You can put up the picture of the spider web. It, it's almost like, you know, when you have a spider web, there's tension that holds the spider web that gives it its beautiful shape. But as soon as you lose one of those tensions, you end up with this big hole, this gaping hole, and the, the web loses its effectiveness. Truth begins to, to fall through. It begins to unravel. And as Christ follows, we have to keep the tension. 
in our lives. That, that grace is free and grace is costly. If we forget one of those, we end up with this warped sense of truth, this warped sense of God, and we're going to struggle in our intimate prayers. I'm going to show you how this works out. So I want to speak for a few minutes about these tensions. So my second big point is that we need to remember the freeness of grace. In your life as a Christ follower, in your prayer life, remember the freeness of grace. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You want to look for a verse to memorize? Boom. Start there. There is therefore, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Our failures, our shortcomings, our sins, our rebellion, our wondering, our wickedness no longer condemn us as Christ followers because we've put our hope in Jesus. So let's go back to prayer for a moment and the kind of prayers we pray. If we forget about this freeness of grace, inward prayers of intimacy where we do business with God around our lives actually loses all effectiveness. Because what happens is when we come to God and we bring our sin to Him, when we, we confess things, actually it becomes a very grueling and self-condemning process where we're telling God, oh God, I did this, and God, I did this, and the guilt and the shame begins to weigh down on us. So what happens when we forget that we're accepted by God despite anything that we do, good or bad. See, when we confess our sins, we, we start to get weighed down when we forget. We feel further away from God than before we started. We're driven away from God, and so we don't confess our sins because there's no way back for us. We don't like to go to God and talk about stuff we're struggling with because it leaves us feeling further away from God and more condemned and less loved. See, when we forget about the freeness of grace, what we can do in our prayer lives is that we try a kind of, I guess it can be almost like a sacrificing of ourselves, a crucifixion of ourselves. We're actually trying to appease God. We make a whole lot of promises and declarations that we hope will be good enough for God to forgive us. Martin Luther says that this is unbiblical repentance. It's actually an attempt at self-righteousness. It's like trying to crucify ourselves. We think the depth of our sorrow will be matched by God's love. So it sounds like this. It sounds like I'm about to go pray and I want to pray for God's forgiveness, but he just needs half an hour to calm down. Just let's, let's just things settle between us. Let God realize what's happened here. I'll go to him tomorrow about this. Or we move away from God, not towards him. Or we justify our sin so that it doesn't seem so bad. Oh God, you know, I did this thing, but... You know, they did that, and this happened, and so, you know, you know it wasn't that bad. We, we have to make it feel not so bad, because there's no way back for us. If it's just condemning us, and we've forgotten the freeness of grace, we have to make it seem not so bad. We tell ourselves that we made it better. God, I did this thing, but, you know, it could have been worse. Or luckily, I did this to, like, kind of ease it over, so, you know, it's not so bad. Could have been a lot worse, you know, God. This is how we can... Go about doing business with God in our prayer life when we forget about grace, the freeness of grace. Listen to what the scriptures say. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Jesus suffered for our sin and so we can do nothing to merit it. We simply receive it. Now, I want you to notice something in this verse. It doesn't say, God will forgive and purify you because he's merciful. It doesn't say that. It says God will forgive you because he is faithful and just. 
He's just. In other words, it would be unjust of God not to forgive your sins because Jesus paid the price for your sins. It would be unjust of God to withhold forgiveness from you because Jesus has paid the price for your sins. There's only one payment sufficient. There's only one payment required for our sins, and it's been paid by Jesus. Even if you wanted to pay it, you couldn't. It costs too much. You can't afford it. You see, when we start to remember the freeness of grace, when we start to live in the freeness of, of grace, it allows us in our prayer lives to move beyond a moment or a behavior and we begin to, to be able to focus more on what's happening in our hearts. Where does this come from? Now, we, if we forget about the freeness of grace and we're so caught up in condemnation, we can't even get past the moment. God, I did this thing, God. It's crushing me, God. It's killing me, God. I'm far from you, God. We, we, we don't have the margin to say, but what's happening in my heart here, God? Like, let me move beyond this thing. I receive forgiveness, God. And now I want to I go beyond that and I want to ask some questions here. When we know that we're loved, forgiven, and accepted by God, it's easier to go with God with our shortcomings. I said before that sometimes we don't go to God because we feel like he needs to calm down or he's not ready to forgive us. Or if I do some stuff in between doing that thing and going to God, maybe he won't be that upset. Maybe I would have just earned a bit of credit. It, it doesn't work like that. And so we don't go to God with our sin. But I'm convinced that maturity, a big part of maturity can be measured from the time that we sin to the time we go to God, that gap. I feel like the more we mature, the closer we get to God, the shorter the time gap. Actually, we, we, we're children of God who understand that He loves us, that we're forgiven, that He's our refuge, that He's our strength, that He's our hope, that He's our rock, that He's our anchor. We go straight to Him. We don't need to go anywhere else. And, and the more often we go to God, and the deeper we're able to go to God with our shortcomings, the more we're going to grow. You want to grow in your maturity. You want to grow in following Jesus. You want to grow in being a Christ follower. Go to God more often. Bring the real you to God and do business with him regularly. You're going to grow. I think you know that if you're getting this right, if you feel like you're abusing it. It's weird. Like now I'm letting myself off the hook too soon. Oh, no, no, I don't feel bad enough about that thing. Oh, no, 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 it's too easy. I mean, that's what makes God's grace so difficult. It's too easy. It's offensive in its, in its obviousness. God loves you despite what you just did. But I just did this thing. But God loves you. He forgives you. That's the one tension, remember? Are you getting it wrong? Are you letting yourself off the hook too soon? You might, you might get grace. Just make sure you're holding on to this other strand, which is remembering the costliness of grace. Remembering the costly. Imagine for a moment you had a mate and they asked you for some cash and you lent them a thousand rand, 10,000 rand. They owed you it and things are getting awkward. Like, do you want some dinner? Do you want to hang out? Don't forget the 10 grand you owe me. You know, things are getting a little awkward. And so you decide you want to deal with this. You're sick of it. You just say, okay, don't worry about it. Forget the 10 grand. It's over. Let's just move on with our life and the friendship kindles again. Did that 10,000 rand debt disappear? Well, yes, no. You paid it. You absorbed the loss. Someone had to lose 10,000 rand. It was you. You paid the price for it. It didn't just disappear. 
And all sin is like a debt that needs to be paid. It doesn't just disappear. Someone has to settle the debt. If you've ever wondered how devastating sin actually is, how destructive it is, consider the cost that had to be paid to forgive it. Ah, sometimes sin, oh, it's, it's sin, a little bit of this, a little bit of that, I should know better. Actually, no, no, think about the price that had to be paid, then you're going to understand some of the depth of the destructive, damaging, hurtful, decaying nature of sin. It cost God plenty, plenty. He had to sacrifice and give up his own son. His own son had to give up the riches in heaven and come down and live a life like us on earth to die, to be resurrected so that we could be forgiven. This matters. This matters in our lives. It matters in our prayer lives because if we forget the costliness of grace, then the confessions of our sin at best become shallow and at worst trivial. We just go to God and we say, oh God, I did the thing, cool, and then we just move on. If we forget the costliness of grace, our confession becomes trivial. We don't change. We aren't transformed. I, I know that there's been lots of seasons in my life, now and again, you're going to relate to this if you're a Christ follower, where you confess sins, but nothing changes. And you confess the same sin over and over and over and over again. Why? Or maybe you've lost touch with the destructive nature of sin. Maybe you've forgotten how destructive it really is. Maybe you've forgotten how costly it is. That, yeah, grace is free, but man, grace is costly. I want you to listen to this quote from John Stott in his book, Confess Your Sins. It says, confessing and forsaking must not be decoupled. Yet most people confess, admit what they did was wrong, without at the same time disowning the sin and turning their hearts against it in such a way that would weaken their ability to do it again. We must be inwardly grieved and appalled enough by our sin, even as we frame the whole process with the knowledge of our acceptance in Christ, that it loses its hold over us. It is possible to merely assent that something is a sin without getting the new perspective on it and experiencing the new inward aversion to it that gives you the power and freedom to change. Beautiful. Man, we come boldly into God's presence. Grace is free. Man, we come humbly and hungry on bended knee because grace is costly. There's a false kind of repentance that's really just self-pity. You might experience this in your life, in your thinking, and in your prayers. We're not really sorry about sin. We're sorry that we got caught, or we're sorry that it's caused an inconvenience, or we're sorry that it's hurt someone we care about, or that it's destroyed a relationship that was really important to us. It's caused us pain. We want it to stop. God, take that thing away. It's unpleasant. That's not true repentance. That's self-pity. You know, that's not going to lead to inner change, transformation. The desires of our hearts are not going to be challenged and transformed. We haven't looked at the false beliefs, the, the misplaced hopes, the wayward desires that are, that are growing in our heart that are causing us. It, it can look like this in your prayer life. You could say, God, I'm really sorry I hurt my friends. Please, can you make things better? God, I, I feel terrible that I treated someone like that. Please help them, God. Please help them, you know, overcome what I did. God, I made a mistake and it's affecting people. Please make everything right. 
God, they left me with no choice, but I still feel bad. Please forgive me. That's not true repentance. That's not true repentance. When we remember the costliness of grace, we admit our sins. And then we desire, we seek God. We look beyond our sin because we don't want to live the same way going forward. I think there's three things that happen when we remember the costliness of grace. One, we acknowledge that sin is firstly against God. It blew off the hinges earlier. It's fine. When, you, when you're going to God and you're remembering, I think you must just leave it. It's going gonna, it's gonna to blow up and down. Is it too windy? Okay. Sorry, Alan, you, you're, a vision, you're a visionary. What songs are coming to mind when you look at the door, eh? Keep on knocking, but you can't come in. Now, you would have probably done a better job, but guys, you've got to come back inside there. They're running around. <laughs> They'll be here any moment. That's commitment. That's pouring with rain. <laughs> As they come in. Maybe when they open that door, the gust. Okay. You with me? When we remember the freeness of, ga- of grace, we can go to God regularly, often, and honestly. When we remember the cottiness of grace, we must remember that sin is first and foremost against God. You look at David, look at the Psalms. Against you have I sinned, God. In other words, we don't try to cover up our sins. We don't blame people. We don't hide behind circumstances. We don't say, oh, it's because the pressures, the, 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 the. no, no, God. There's been stuff, behavior happening here that's affected people and things, but ultimately sin is first and foremost against you. God, I've dishonored you. God, I've fallen short of your glory. God, I've fallen short of your desire for my life. I've stepped out of the path that you have laid for me. That's what sin is, missing the mark. We don't go to God out of self-interest. We go to God out of worship. When we realize that sin is against God, we say, God, I love you too much to not acknowledge that I've fallen short here. It's an act of worship. It's acknowledging God and who he is to us. Number two, we take responsibility for our sin. We've got to stop shifting the blame. We've got to admit our actions. And then thirdly, there's this desire to please and honor God. It's when you're understanding the costliness of grace. In your prayers, there's this addition of, but God, I want to please you. God, I want to honor you with my life going forward. Inward prayers of intimacy where we do business with God, they can be so life-giving and so transformative if we're able to live in the fullness of grace and understand that grace is free and grace is costly. We've got to hold that together in our prayers. Okay, I've been laying some biblical foundations. I want to get practical. I want to talk a little bit about how do we actually do this? What does it look like? And hopefully it's going to pull some of these threads together. And remember, we, the series is all about inviting us into deepening our prayer lives. This isn't intellectual, like, yumminess. It, yeah, it stimulates our minds, but ultimately what we want to do is we want to transform the way we pray. We want to build fresh rhythms of prayer in our lives because when we do, we're going to be transformed. We're going to be more like Jesus than ever before. We're going to grow in our faith. 
I think sometimes in the busyness of life, I spoke about it a few weeks ago, we tend to skim through life, skim Facebook, skim Instagram. We don't go that deep. It's that sometimes with our sins, we take the shotgun approach. God, I sinned today, forgive me. God, I know that I sinned this week, forgive me. Just like cover all your bases. We don't really reflect on what the sin was and what exactly happened or what we did or what our part of it was. We're just covering the bases. And, and, and part of the question is, well, why bother to, to name them if, well, because grace is not only free, it's also costly. Sin matters. Jesus paid the price to forgive us of our sins. We want to honor God with our lives. We want to know what's happening in my life, God, that's dishonoring you. What's happening in my life, God, that's bringing your name into disrepute? What's happening in my life, God, that's dishonoring your brothers and your sisters, my brothers and sisters in Christ? Sin is destructive and it hurts God's witness in the world. And as Christians, we don't only want to find rest for our souls. We don't want to say, God, just forgive all my sins so I'm at peace. No, no, we also want to honor and glorify God with our lives. So we're saying, God, I want to be secure, but I want to live anew for your glory. And so I think we should commit to doing four things. Here we go. Number one, commit to dealing with your sin well. Sounds obvious. As a Christ follower, I think it's an invitation for you to commit to deal with your sin well. I know this sounds strange, but I believe that as Christians, we forget that we sin sometimes. We forget that we sin. You can look at someone and they're like actually a really nice person. And they do really well and they get together and they're kind. And even though they're successful, they're humble. And we forget that they're a sinner. We forget that there's aspects of their heart that are broken, that there's destructiveness in there, that there's seeds of rebellion in all of our lives. Yes, we're, we're forgiven and we're free, but we still wrestle with inward desires that are contrary to God's desires. Do you know that you're a sinner? Probably yes. But have you committed to deal with your sin well? as a matter of normal Christian living. One John one eight, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins. So number one, commit to dealing with your sin well. Number two, commit to self-examination and confession. Commit to these things. Our prayer lives ought to include times where we sit and reflect about things that we don't have time to do in the ordinary course of life. Because in life, often we don't think about what we're doing and what we're saying and how we're reacting and how we're relating to our spouse and how we're relating to our kids and how we're relating in the business deal. We're just busy. We need to build in a time where we actually have space to think about what's happening in me. (laughs) What's driving my life? What's happening? So we've got to build that in. There are different ways that you can do it. Some of you like structure. Those eight type personalities. You could work, you could take, and this is where meditation comes in. If you took time to meditate on the 10 commandments and you've got a grasp in your mind of what they mean, what these 10 commandments actually stand for, you've, you've fleshed it out a little bit in your times of meditation. You could take that fleshing out and daily, weekly, bi-weekly, go to God and say, and just work through the list. Say, God, just highlight to me where there's sin in my life, where I'm off kilter, where I'm on a different path, where my affections are wayward. You could look at the fruits of the Spirit 
in Galatians 5. Love, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. You could look at those and say, God, show me, am I, am I moving towards these? What? And through your meditation, you've understood this is what they are, this is what they aren't. And now you take that meditation and you use it to reflect on your own life. If you, if you don't like that kind of structure, and there's lots of other ways, look at other texts, you could find something. You could go more the unstructured route, which is simply to make a note as you're living your life, sin becomes obvious. I used to say that I really used to use, need the Holy Spirit. Now I've got Heidi to help me. <laughs> but, but throughout life, we recognize that we're sinning. Make a note of, of something that's bothering you. You might not need to write it down. It's in your mind, but life gets busy. You write it down. And later, when there's a time of prayer, you take that thing out and you look at it and you say, I need to deal with this. I need to deal with this thing. I need to do business with God around this thing. I receive his forgiveness and I understand the costliness of it and I want to glorify God with my life. You could ask a trusted friend or a spouse, are you noticing stuff in me? Habits, tendencies, ways, desires that, that concern you. You do that with a trusted friend. You could take a moment every evening to just reflect on the day. What happened today? How did I react today? And actually, you'll be amazed at what comes to mind. It just doesn't come to our mind because we don't create the space, the margin, but let's build that into our lives. Whether it's daily, weekly, bi-weekly, I don't want to say monthly. So that's number two, is commit to self-examination and confession. And then commit to renewal. So we, we're committing to deal with our sin properly. We're committing to, to actually create time to, to examine ourselves but then we also need to commit to renewal. We need to commit to, to live differently going forward. See, part of doing business with God around sin is weakening sin at a motivational level. John Stott wrote about that. It's weakening sin at a motivational level. It's moving beyond the action and doing some real soul work. And John Owen says, the great theologian, he says you do this by meditating on God's holiness, on God's nature, on the love of God. And when you're meditating, again, meditating on Scripture, the role of God's Word in our prayer life is significant. We're never going to deepen our prayer lives unless we're deepening our journey into God's Word. But as we meditate on God's Word and we start to look at our actions and our lives and our sins in the light of, the, of that new lens, it becomes apparent that it's not congruent. And we begin to understand that actually, God, that attitude is, is not in line with this thing I know to be true about you. And so you start to think about this thing. You start to see it from God's perspective. And slowly, your desire for this other affection begins to fade away. It begins just to disintegrate. I'm not saying it'll go away forever. It might ruin you, and then you, again, you, you meditate on the truth about God, and we see the change come. John Owens, he, he says what you can do, because each of us know ourselves. We've got different weaknesses, different strengths. He says, if you know yourself, you could create many messages that work for you. So here's some of his weak ones. He says this, is this how I treat the one who has brought me into this unconditionally loved, loved state? It's something he would meditate on when he's dealing with his sin. He would meditate on this question until the desire for that sin dwindles. He would say, will I fail to forgive when you die to forgive me? 
If you just meditate on that, it's hard to, to, to keep un- not forgiving someone. It desire just dwindles. Will I be anxious over the loss of money when you gave yourself to be my security and my true wealth? Will I nurse my pride when you emptied yourself completely to rescue me? Let me invite the band to come up. I want to give just a few more examples and then I'm going to land. Here's some prayers that George Whitfield prays to weaken the strength of sin, the pull of sin in his life. It says, oh Lord, I fall into pride. But on the cross, you made yourself of no reputation and gave up all your power and glory for me. The more I thank you and rejoice that you did that, the less I need to worry about my own honor and reputation, but whether people are approving of me or not. Just two more. Oh Lord, I fall into coldness and irritability. But in the garden, just before you died, you were so gentle and affirming of us, even when we went to sleep on you. On the cross, you were giving yourself for people who abandoned you or mocked you. The more I thank and rejoice that you did that for me, the more it melts away my harness and makes me able to be patient and attentive to people around me. My wife's probably telling me to pray that one a few more times. Oh Lord, I fall into anxiety and fearfulness, but you faced the most astonishing dangers for me. You were torn to pieces so bravely for me, so I could be utterly loved and eternally safe in you. If you were courageous for me, facing those overwhelming cosmic evils, I know you are with me now. Therefore, I can be steady in every circumstance. Why don't you stand? Inward prayers of intimacy. They are an invitation from God to have an increasing experience of His grace and a greater assurance of His love for you while at the same time transforming you from the inside out for God's glory. To do it well. Remember the freeness of grace. Remember the costliness of grace. God, as we stand before you, we are so grateful that grace is free for us. That you paid the price, that we can come into your presence, that we can celebrate and sing, that we can know you because you paid the price for our rebellion. And God, you're so worthy of our praise that we want to live for your glory. We want to praise you. We want to honor you. We want to worship you with our lives, with who we are. Help us, God, to deal with our stuff before you, for your glory and our good.